Well, to begin, let me ask you, how many of you like the temperature of your bedroom to be really, really cold when you go to bed at night? How many? Okay, very good, okay. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about the temperature of the sheets, okay? That's a huge controversial topic that married couples have been fighting about since the beginning of time. I'm not talking about the temperature of the sheets, but rather the room. It seems like most of you, you like the room to be really, really cold, right? You know, where it's, it's cold and you're all cozy and snuggled up under the sheets, right? You guys like that, right? Well, you know who else really likes that? In fact, they like it to an extreme. Nordic babies. Well, at least their parents think they do. According to the BBC, Nordic parents will stick their babies outside, all bundled up, in the freezing cold during the child's nap time. That's right, so it's not uncommon to see an image like this. In Finland, where this practice is common, parents will put their babies down for a nap outdoors when the temperature dips below negative 16 degrees Fahrenheit. And this is on purpose. They believe that babies who nap outside sleep longer, get better quality of sleep, and are exposed to fewer germs as compared when they sleep indoors. You see, parents in Nordic countries think it's very important, very important that their children be outside, and not just when napping. They prioritize maximizing a child's outdoor time, often citing this motto, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. Now, I think it's hard to imagine anyone here in the United States sticking their baby outside in the freezing cold to take a nap, right? I don't think we'd see much of this in our colder states. You know, citizens in other countries can do some funny things, can't they? At least things that appear funny to us. And there's a reason for that isn't there. And that's because every culture, every country has its own set of values, don't they? Like our Nordic friends who value the outdoors. Every culture, every country has its own set of values. Well, the Bible teaches that when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, the Bible teaches that that person receives a new citizenship. As the Apostle Paul states in Colossians 1.13, believers have been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. This is to say, if you are a Christian, you are not only a citizen of the land you reside here on earth, but you are also a citizen of God's kingdom. And just like with each culture in the world, the kingdom of God has its own set of values. This is to say, the citizens of God's kingdom 
are expected to live in a certain way under the lordship of the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ. And here's the question I want us to consider this morning, and that is, so what does that look like? What is that way that citizens of God's kingdom are to live? In other words, how should we Christians as citizens of God's kingdom conduct our lives here on this earth? And there's a lot of ways we could answer that question, right? Well, for starters, it doesn't mean sticking your baby out in the cold. <laughs> but what it does mean is quite countercultural. And what is that? Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 4. Our text this morning helps answer that question of what should citizens of God's kingdom, how should they live and conduct their lives? Our text this morning helps answer that question. Uh, if you're looking, if you need a, a Bible, we have some Bibles in the chair in front of you. And that's page 257 in that paperback Bible. Uh, for the past several weeks, we've been studying the book of 2 Samuel. And what is recorded in the opening four chapters of this book is really, it's the early establishment of God's kingdom. We're reading the early establishment of God's kingdom. God has called David and anointed David to be the king of his people. Now, to be sure, there are differences from what we see at this point in redemptive history concerning God's kingdom versus what we see in the New Testament in God's kingdom through Jesus Christ. There are differences, to be sure. That said, though, in our text this morning, we do learn an important truth that is applicable not only to God's people at this time with David, but also applicable to us today as New Covenant Christians through faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, the lesson we learn in this text is one that the Lord Jesus Christ taught himself in the New Testament. Now, before we dive into 2 Samuel chapter 4, uh, it's going to be helpful for us to get the context in order for us to properly understand what transpires in chapter 4. We not only need to remember what happened in the previous chapter, but also what took place at the beginning of this book. In fact, tell me, class, Pop quiz. Dun, dun, dun. The book of 2 Samuel begins with the announcement of whose death? Saul. So, Saul and one other person. So that's right, yes. And tell me, who told David of Saul's death? An Amalekite. And did this Amalekite tell David the truth? concerning Saul's death or a lie? A lie. a lie, that's right. The Amalekite claimed that he killed Saul. Remember this? And do you remember, what items did the Amalekite give to David after he told David that he killed Saul? Do you remember? He gave him two things. Saul's crown and his armlet. Remember this? Now, why would the Amalekite 
lie like that? Why would he present himself as the one who killed Saul, the man who had been actively trying to kill David? Why would the Amalekite lie like that? What's not hard to see, is it? The dots are pretty easy to connect, and that's because the Amalekite, by going to David and saying, hey, I killed your worst enemy, the Amalekite was seeking and striving to get a high position of authority in David's kingdom. As historians tell us in the ancient Near East, the kings of other nations would often kill off any potential threats to the throne. This was the way of the world during transitions of power. So what we see happening in 2 Samuel 1 is we see the Amalekite, please hear me, acting out of self-interest. He told David that he killed Saul so that he would get a position of prominence in David's kingdom. You tell me, class, what did David do to the Amalekite who claimed that he killed Saul? He killed him, right? Why? Because the way of the world is not the way of God's kingdom. Specifically, the Lord forbid striking down the anointed king. So this is really important for us to know. Well, then in 2 Samuel chapters 2 through 3, we see that Saul's right-hand man, Abner, he anoints Saul's son, Ishbosheth to be king over the northern tribes, okay? The whole time, Abner knows that David is to be the man over all of God's people. And then through a series of events, Abner eventually defects and joins up with David. And it appears for about four verses <laughs> that the northern tribes and the southern tribes are all going to be under the reign and rule of King David, God's anointed man for the job. Yet what happens to Abner? He gets killed. And tell me, who kills Abner? Joab. And Joab is David's what? Right-hand man. Does this please David? No, indeed. David publicly mourns the death of Abner. So here's, that's where we last left off, okay? Abner is dead. David is upset. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who Abner anointed as the king over the northern tribes, he's really, really vulnerable right now. Because his commander, Abner, is dead. So follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as we read 2 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to be introduced to two brothers who are going to play a significant role in this narrative. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Of course his courage failed, because Abner was the guy who anointed him as king, and he was his protector. He's nervous. Now Saul's son, this is Ishbosheth, 
had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Bena, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimen, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth is also counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day. Now, let's just pause for a moment. This is important. Tell me, what tribe are these two brothers from? Say it like you mean it. Benjamin. Benjamin. Can you think of anyone else we've come across in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, a rather significant person, who is also from the tribe of Benjamin? Very good. I actually didn't know if you were going to get that one, but very good. Yes, Saul. This verse is emphasizing that these brothers are not partisan of David, but they're from Saul's own tribe, meaning they are fully aligned with the house of Saul. And this is going to be an important detail later on in the narrative. Now look at what we read in verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So, so now why, why would this lady who is caring for Jonathan's son feel the need to flee? It's because, as I mentioned a moment ago, when there's a transition of power, typically the new power slaughters any competition to the throne. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son and Saul's what? Grandson. But what this text, so why is the author mentioning this? He's mentioned for a couple reasons. First to say that there is someone from Saul's line who's still alive. But notice what we learn about this, this young man. First of all, he's way too young to be a threat. And also, what's, what's his physical condition? He's lame, right? We're seeing the weakness of the house of Saul. And in a moment here, we're going to see the strength of David's. Now verse 5. Now the sons of Rimen, the Berothite, Rechab and Bena, set out and about the heat of the day came to the house of Abibasheth as he was taking his noonday rest. If you're the note-taking type, naps are biblical. And here's your proof text, okay? Amen. Naps, yes, amen. I was hoping to amen somebody, yes. So Ishbosheth is taking his nap, and these two guys who are from the house of Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin, verse 6, and they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Man, where have we seen that before? How about every death in 2 Samuel up until this point? <laughs> right? And notice, it goes on. They, it goes into greater detail what they did. Verse 7, And when they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night. As, as several commentators have pointed out, 
The author wants to impress us with the total weakness of Saul's health, and especially these two guys. Notice, these guys, they are so macho, they're so tough, that they kill this guy in his sleep. What tough hombres they are, right? It's, it's almost trying to let us know just, these, these are not valiant, noble men. They're killing a guy in his sleep. Now verse 8. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day, on Saul and for his offspring. Now, back in 2 Samuel chapter 1, when the Amalekite went up to David and lied to David that he killed Saul, the Amalekite gave David something of Saul. What was it? His crown. Notice what do we see happening here. These two brothers are coming up to David again, and they're saying, I killed another king, Ithbosheth. Yet, are they presenting David with a crown? What do they give him? His actual head. And notice how David responds to their actions in verse 9. Hopefully you're connecting the dots and you can anticipate what's going to happen. Verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Baena, his brother, the sons of Rimen, the Berothite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. Who's that in reference to? The Amalekite, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed? Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them besides the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Amen and amen. This is God's word. And a rather graphic word at that, right? You know, if there's one thing the people of Kentucky know, it's horse racing, right? I mean, we're home of the Kentucky Derby. And since most of you, if not all of you, are residents of the Bluegrass State, tell me, who won the Kentucky Derby last year? <laughs> well, I really thought this was going to be a selfie. What? Medina Spirit. That's right, my son. My 11-year-old son is putting you all to shame. You can take your residence, yes. Medina Spirit. Now, I don't know, so maybe this illustration is not going to land, but I'm going to keep going, okay? I don't know if you're aware of this, but that was a very heated and controversial race. There was lots of drama that ensued as a result of it. However, I would argue the controversy and emotion surrounding that race pales in comparison to what happened 11 years ago to the day 
on August 22, 2010 at Mammoth Park Racetrack. You see, of the 10 horses that were entered in that race, one was named, My Wife Knows Everything, horse number three, and another horse was named, The Wife Doesn't Know, horse number seven. Absolutely true story. My wife knows everything, the wife doesn't know. Guess which horse you think won? Who's it? <laughs> no one's going to want to say it, right? <laughs> well, let's find out. I have the final footage up here on the screen. And Lord, I pray that this works. On the far outside, the wife doesn't know is moving up and is now fourth and right alongside of my wife knows everything. My wife knows everything and the wife doesn't know are moving together on the far turn, and they're coming after Lady Mutata coming to the quarter pole. Lady Mutata in front. Here come My Wife Knows Everything, and The Wife Doesn't Know on the far outside. Little Miss Macho is fourth. They're into the stretch. Lady Mutata, My Wife Knows Everything. Center of the track, The Wife Doesn't Know. Into the final furlong. My Wife Knows Everything. The wife doesn't know. They're one, two. Of course they are. My wife knows everything in front. To the outside, the wife doesn't know. My wife knows everything. The wife doesn't know. My wife knows everything. More than the wife doesn't know. Whew. Miss Tallahassee was third, and Morningside Heights was fourth. Yeah! <laughs> to no one's surprise... My wife knows everything won the race, and I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm not going to say anything more. You know, despite this being a fun and entertaining story, the truth is horse racing is a serious competition. Every person involved in a horse race is striving to see their horse win, striving to be first. But you know what's not a competition? Serving in the kingdom of God. Consider what we learn in this chapter, especially in light of the first four chapters of 2 Samuel. What do we see both the Amalekite in chapter 1 and these two brothers in chapter 4 doing? You know what we see them doing? They're acting out of their own self-interest in order to get a position in the kingdom. And consider for a moment how sophisticated the selfish ambition is of these two brothers. Through their carefully chosen words in verse 8, I mean, are these guys not suggesting, more than suggesting, they are saying that they are servants of the Lord. More to the point, notice they are actually claiming to be the ones to whom David owes the debt of a posh government job. They killed Ishbosheth for their own advancement and then spun it to David by saying, We are the Lord's deliverer for you. You owe us, David, a high ranking position. In the kingdom. Yet notice, David, God's true anointed king, he has none of it. And you know what this text is teaching? I think this text is pressing upon our hearts this truth, and that is, 
Selfish ambition has no place in God's kingdom. Striving to be first, striving to be first like a horse race, has no place in the kingdom of God. Wanting to promote yourself, wanting to make much of yourself, no place in God's kingdom. Now, murder also has no place in God's kingdom. And David is absolutely right and just to condemn and execute these two murderers. Yet as the New Testament makes clear, what is often underneath all our sinful attitudes and actions is this selfish ambition. And I want to argue that's exactly what we see in these two brothers. In fact, consider how this truth comes even into greater light when you compare the actions of David with literally everyone else in the opening four chapters. I mean, what do we see David doing here in finally him uh, having control of the kingdom? You know what we see David doing? We see David waiting. We see David being patient. David is waiting on the Lord He's not being impatient, taking matters into his own hands. He's not seizing control of the situation. No, we see David submitting himself to the Lord's ways and to the Lord's timing. And then notice how this is made abundantly clear in verse 9, when David states that it has been the Lord who has delivered him out of every adversity. That's a statement of, I've been trusting in the Lord. Everyone else in these chapters is acting in their own self-interest in order to gain position in the kingdom. Everyone except David. So let's drill down here for a moment. Christian, through your union with Christ, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins, you are part of God's kingdom. And as citizens of God's kingdom, selfish ambition is to have no place in your life. This is to say we are not to live for the promotion of ourselves, our wants, our wishes, our desires, the fame of our name. And can I ask, does your life reflect the values of God's kingdom? How often do you look for ways to promote yourself in a conversation? What is your motivation to say the things you say or to do the things you do? Deep down, what is driving you? Is it your own selfish wants and desires? I know it's often true of me. In fact, I must confess to you this week is as I was studying this, the Lord convicted me so strongly in this very area. Aaron, you are overly concerned with promoting yourself. The Lord in his kindness, it was painful, but it was so good. The Lord in his kindness removed the blinders from my eyes 
so I could see my sin, my selfish ambition more clearly. And I wonder if you might be doing the same with you right now. Reflect on this past week. Think about the conversations you had with your spouse or your family members, the conversations you had at work, the conversations you had at the neighborhood. How concerned were you you about you? Where did selfish ambition show its head? It will, it will do us no good if we excuse or justify or rationalize away the moments that we have dis- demonstrated in our thinking and in our actions selfish ambition. Change comes when we first own it. And so that's the question I want us just to consider for the next couple moments. If the Lord in his kindness is showing in your heart that you have selfish ambition, how ought we to remove it? How can we, in other words, align ourselves with the values of God's kingdom? Well, several actions I think are required. And here's the first. You know what the first thing we need to do if we're going to eradicate selfish ambition in our hearts? We first need to see selfish ambition for what it really is. And the Apostle James helps us do exactly that. In James chapter 3, there's this wonderful little section where James contrasts the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world. Listen to what James writes. Have it on the screen. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good works, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. The, the, the false truth being like, you claim to be wise. You claim to be godly. You, you claim that God told you to do this. Don't, don't claim to be that if you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. And then notice what he says. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual. And what's that last word? Demonic. He goes on. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But when the wisdom from above, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James does not mince words here, does he? Notice what he says. He says, selfish ambition is not simply bad. It is. No, it's demonic. Why? Because it's in direct contradiction to God in his kingdom. As this verse makes clear and 2 Samuel 4 illustrates, selfish ambition has no place in God's kingdom. So what this means is 
friend, please hear me, Christian, your desire to promote yourself, to exalt yourself, to make much of yourself is demonic. Whether you do it up here on a stage or in a small group or in your neighborhood or among your church friends, selfish ambition goes in direct contrast to the values of God and God's kingdom. It's not benign, it's serious. And we need to see it as such. That's the first thing. But second, when we see the seriousness of it, we also need to own and confess it and to repent of it. As I mentioned a moment ago, it does us no good to see it and then justify it. Change doesn't happen when we keep justifying the sin God graciously exposes into our lives. But third, we then need to replace our selfish thinking with correct thinking, and not just thinking, but action. Consider for a moment what we learn from David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Mark 9. Like David of old, Jesus makes it clear that selfish ambition has no place in God's kingdom. You'll recall how in that passage, it's one of my favorite passages, the disciples are arguing. They're arguing over who's the greatest in the kingdom. Remember this? Like the Amalekite in 2 Samuel 1, Abner in chapters 2 through 3, and these two brothers in chapter 4, the disciples of Jesus' day were also jockeying for a high position in God's kingdom. Listen to how Jesus responds. Mark 9, 33-35. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked him, Hey guys, what were you discussing on the way? And you can just see them put their heads down, but they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. And what? Servant of all. Jesus turns the conversation on its head, doesn't he? Greatness in God's kingdom is not through self-promotion, but through self-sacrifice. That is, greatness is found in being a servant. And I think it's appropriate to ask ourselves if we are going to be citizens that reflect the value of the kingdom we're a part of God, which way do our hearts lean most often? To be a servant or to serve? Is my first thought with my family, how can I help my family or how can my family help me and make my life better? How can they make my life easier? Is my first thought, how can I serve my friends and the members of this church? Or actually, how could they help me to make my life easier? One's the, the mindset of a master. The other's the mindset of a servant. Indeed, as citizens of God's kingdom, we are to have the mindset of our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is precisely what Paul exhorts us to do in Philippians 2, doesn't he? What does Paul write there? I'm going to throw it up on the screen. 
Notice again, we see this, this theme in the New Testament of how we're to rid ourselves of selfish ambition. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying, you citizen of the kingdom whom Jesus is your king, have the same mindset as your king. What is that mindset? Who, though he was in the very form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a what? A servant. So what would it look like for you today to look out for the interests of others? What would it look like for you today to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but instead count others more significant than yourself? How could you have the mind of Christ today by taking the attitude of a servant rather than a master who wants to be served? Selfish ambition has no place in God's kingdom. Yet as Christians, what is the most important thing I want you to see is this. What what Christ calls us to do is really hard. It is. But this is what you need to hear from me if you hear nothing else. You need to know that Jesus is not calling you to do anything he himself has not first done for you. In fact, you know, the only reason why we as God's people can forsake selfish ambition and instead pursue servant-hearted humility, the only reason we can do that is because Christ did it for us. And praise the Lord he did, otherwise we would all be damned in our sins. Friend, please hear me. You need to know this also about selfish ambition. Selfish ambition comes with a cost. Since selfless ambition is in direct opposition to God and his kingdom, scripture clearly teaches that our sin earns us, our selfish ambition earns us God's judgment. In fact, the judgment David inflicted on those two brothers, it pales in comparison to the coming judgment God has for all who are in their sin. All of us who have earned judgment do our sin. The wages of sin is death. Yet, friend, the good news of the Bible is that Jesus Christ died to save sinful, self-absorbed people like you and me. The good news of the gospel is that in humility, Jesus took on the form of a servant and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The good news of the Bible is that though we are owed God's condemnation for our sin, Jesus looked out for the interests of others by leaving his throne in heaven in order to live the perfect life we failed to live, then die the death we deserve to die for our sins so that our selfish, conceited hearts might be redeemed. And friend, this salvation is received simply by faith. 
Do you know this salvation? If not, I would plead with you to put your trust in Christ alone, not your own righteousness. I mean, who here is going to say, I don't have selfish ambition? Who's here going to say, I haven't thought self-centered thoughts or acted in self-centered ways? Friend, we know this. And our sin earns us a judgment. And God is just and right to condemn us for our sin. But we don't have to die and face that judgment. God has made provision through his son, Jesus Christ. Have you put your trust in him? Not your own righteousness to save you, but the perfect righteousness of Jesus. If you have, for those of you who are Christians, heed the exhortation of this text and forsake selfish ambition and instead adopt the mindset of a servant. Look for ways to serve others rather than yourself. Christian, our focus in life is not to be our own greatness, but rather our focus ought to be the glory and greatness of our King Jesus. Amen? May he be our vision day and night, and may our greatest passion be for him and not ourselves. Let's pray.